I remember it was one of those moments where I was like, like so grateful. Um, Cause you know, like, like you guys know, like when you're, when you're getting into recovery, like you've no idea what's going to happen. And it's that fear of like, what's going to happen to me when I take away this crutch that I've been living with. And um, for me, it's like, I had no idea the doors that were going to open. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Hey, welcome back to another episode of From Darkness to Life, an OCJ podcast here in the Plugged In Media Network studio. I guess I better mention our sponsor. we got a sponsor now, Nicole yeah. Davis Realty. She's been sponsoring most of our episodes this season, so that's amazing. I think if we don't mention her, we owe her money. Oh, wow. Well, Nicole Davis Realty. Nicole Davis Realty. <laughs> <laughs> We're good this week. Right on. Hey, as you can hear, I'm joined with my good buddy, Rick. Hi. Hi, Rick. Hi. Um, we got Dave in the background working his magic. Dave has found a new obsession back there, so we won't be bothering Dave too much. No, and he'll be tied up for the remainder of the episode. Yeah, that's right, Dave. Just put it on silent. <laughs> and uh, we are joined today from the West Coast. Usually I'm jealous of the West Coast because they have nice weather. And well, I think don't. the weather's better. Yeah. Usually. Well, right now even. Yeah. I'll yeah, still trade got, the weather. Yeah, totally. They got two feet of snow. That's nothing in Alberta. No. We're good with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the 40. It's the 40 below that can. Oh, well, I'm supposed to clean up my language. So yeah, clean that shit up. <laughs> Rick's got the worst language in the league. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Anyway, we're joined here with our good buddy, Ryan from the West Coast. How you doing today, man? I'm good. I'm good. Right on. Ryan. Not it, as cold as you guys, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you can have some of that anytime. We'll take your, we'll take, we'll trade you 20 degrees for a 40 year snow. Yeah. Straight across. I'll throw in a bag of pucks too. Yeah. And some de-icer. Yeah. 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 How's that? Deal? It sounds great. great. (laughs) Man, we're losers. Right on. So yeah, Ryan, uh, we had the privilege of connecting. I think it was last year. We were both in the recovery coach training through Orca and, uh, Got to know each other. I know Rick's been out the last door. That was, I believe, your place of employment. I don't know if you're still there or not. Are you? You're on your own now, I think. I'm on my own now. Yeah. I um, left in August right before I got married. So uh, August 19th, I think, was my last day after seven and a half years of working there. Wow. It was pretty wild, though. When I was out there, I rolled into a to a 12-step meeting. And lo and behold, I'm looking across like, it's a pretty busy meeting and I look up and I see an OCJ t-shirt in the corner and I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? How'd that happen? That's sick. <laughs> Was it the hot pink yeah. one or did you get the blue one? Uh, no, I think it's like, I think it's black and oh, blue. Yeah, yeah, it's black yeah. and blue. Yeah. yeah. No, nice. I think, uh, I think Mitch yanked that pink one pretty quick. Right on. Yeah. He's representing that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, welcome to the show. We're glad that you took some time out of your day and your shoveling routine today to come and fill us with your knowledge, share your story with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Don't I have, I have my guys doing all the shoveling. So nice. I you retired have, from that a while ago. You have, you have guys, you have guys for what, that. Tell us about this. Y- yeah. So, um, 
When I left Last Door, I opened up a, a sober living facility in New Westminster, like three blocks from Last Door. So, whoa, 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 just hang on a sec. Does it mean like you're the executive director of this thing and all of your I, staff shovels the sidewalks? Because that would be a great precedent to it, set. No, just don't. It, it would be the, I am the, the executive director, but the residents actually oh, do the shoveling. There's the key. But the you residents. still get to direct people to shovel the oh, side. Absolutely. Oh, perfect. Good, 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 good. You listening, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. listening. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Gee. <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just had to set a precedent, sir. Moving on. Amber, I hope you're listening. Get your snowshoes on. <laughs> I'll be back shortly. We'll shovel. <laughs> oh yeah okay back to you sorry about that yep go yeah um yeah so i i left the last door um so about four years ago i mean one of the reasons i went into the recovery coaching where i met you ryan um during that period was because i started a private practice while working at the last door doing kind of aftercare for a lot of the emerging adults um you know, because I, I look really young for my age. I'm 33, but I look 19 sometimes. So uh, when I was working as a case manager at Last Door, I got a lot of the like 19, 20 year olds, 21 year olds that were like, you know, when they finished treatment, they weren't going home, but they weren't quite, you know, ready for independent living. And so I started like kind of working with Last Door and went and got like insurance and, and started a private practice doing recovery coaching. Um, as they transitioned out of treatment, nice. right? And so over the last four years of running um, my business, which is maintain recovery, I started noticing there's like kind of a, a gap for a lot of people coming out of treatment, um, looking for housing um, that still need like a level of support, um, especially coming out of facilities that are like remote. So like, you know, there's one on Bowen Island. Um, so a lot of individuals complete treatment there and then come back to the lower mainland mm -hmm. and so me and my wife you know kind of decided that we wanted to do some type of sober living because we were pretty much doing it without realizing we were doing it we were moving people in in recovery into a house we were renting in new west and we had like six roommates and nice. you know just people in early recovery that you know couldn't rent on their own because they don't have any references or anything like that um and then, you know, as we were about to get married, we're like, we should probably live on our own before we get married. So we we moved out of that place and um, decided to open up like an actual sober living. Um, so when I left the door, I took possession of a house uh, beginning of September and spent two months renoing it and working with the city to get it licensed. And I opened it up in November. Wow. And so I got about four guys here right now. And a couple more coming, one coming from Edmonton actually in January and I'm licensed for 10. So what a cool, yeah, idea. it's been, it's, it's been a whirlwind. <laughs> yeah. I know we've talked, uh, one of our previous guests here, uh, just a couple weeks ago, Earl Thiessen, he's the executive director at the Oxford, Oxford house foundation. And, uh, that's a big piece of their practice is the kind of post-treatment relationships where, you know, guys get out of the the safety and security of a treatment center, residential treatment and uh, not, you know, they're, they're good, but not quite ready to be fully independent. Right. And it's a, uh, I know in our, in our city, that's one thing that we've identified as kind of a, a huge gap that we're trying to, we're trying to fill just with the service of recovery coaching. We don't quite have the facility yet, but I got a yet. sneaky suspicion that it's going to happen. 
Yeah, for sure. So that's yeah, so I heard, cool. I heard something's on your guys' radar. <laughs> you guys are doing big things over there. That's a big radar. Yeah, we got a big radar. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really cool. I didn't realize. I knew you were out on your own doing uh, recovery coaching. You're also an addic- addictions counselor as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I knew you had your own practice, but I didn't know you had ventured into the sober living, the transitional stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, it was kind of like, um, you know, like one of those moments of low self-esteem that comes back as a person who struggles with, you know, addiction in my past is like, could I do it? Is it possible? And, Mm -hmm. you know, fear and all that kind of stuff. And I partnered up with a, a husband and wife whose son is in recovery as well. And, you know, their son was, um, like 20 when he got clean and and they were like i wish something like this was around when our son finished treatment and so we've been putting our heads together for like the last year coming up with kind of a business model and how we we're going to do it and trying to find a property and you know the the risk was like in order to rezone a residential home in new westminster you have to you have to own it and you have to um zone it properly so you can do it you know, above, above board. Right. And, and real so, estate's pretty reasonable up in that neck of the woods. eh? Oh yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, for, for 600 square feet, you're looking at like 500 K. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So not, yeah. So for 500 K in medicine hat, you can get just about anything. Really. Yeah. 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 You can open up a very luxurious place here. Yeah. So we'll give you some of our weather for some of your real estate. (laughs) There's the trade, right? (laughs) It's a bartering system, this episode. I like it. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been pretty cool. Like seeing it come to light and, and, uh, you know, we have a guy here from Mexico. He did four months of treatment, bed-based treatment in Mexico, um, and, and wanted to come, come up to Canada. And, and kind of start fresh and um so he actually moved up here in i think the first week of december and he's like already part of the community here and playing on the soccer recovery team and he's just like it's, it's so amazing so and shoveling it's, snow it's been a pr- pretty rad experience and oh yeah yeah he's <laughs> out there shoveling too <laughs> oh boy welcome to canada yeah crazy yeah <laughs> So why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your personal journey as opposed to your professional? Like, how'd you, how'd you find your spot here? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, I was a little bit of a late bloomer, so I'm 33 now. Um, I ended up um, in treatment at 25, but I didn't really start using drugs or, or alcohol until about 19. Um, you know, like I, I have a, an older brother, a younger brother and a, and an older sister. And, um, out of like the group of us, I was like kind of the one that was pretty good in school. Um, you know, like on the, the soccer provincial team played on like two different clubs growing up. Um, and really, if you were to like, look at me from the outside in like high school, it was like, Hey, this, he's the one who's going to have his stuff together. And, and, you know, my mom was kind of like, my, my mom was a single mom, so she she raised us, except for my younger brother. He's a, he's my half-brother, and my dad is an active alcoholic, and so he wasn't a huge part of our, our lives growing up, and um, 
so my mom was kind of like, she used to always say to me like, oh, you're going to be the one who's going to get a scholarship and go to school. And I was, I was a big mama's boy. So, <laughs> so <was Rick>. um, <laughs> and you know, like when I look back at my life now, like I, there was always like a, a piece of me that struggled with like, uh, overthinking, do I fit in? Am I a part of, or people judging me? Like just that, like I was constantly on edge mm-hmm. of like trying to fit into like different groups. Like I was part of the the athletic group and this group. And, um, I, I would say like my first addiction took place. Uh, I started playing a video game called counter-strike in like grade nine. And I literally like didn't go to school for like three months wow i would play all night wait for my mom's alarm to go off for her work and then i pretend i was asleep and then she'd leave and then i'd play again and i i think the piece that i liked about it is there was like kind of like an online world to it where i could escape and in that world i got to be whoever i wanted to be i didn't have to be you know the kid that struggled like with his identity or feeling not good enough and um you know we we kind of grew up like you know like um in like a bit of like i would say like like poverty in the sense of like almost being evicted like our internet getting cut off uh our power getting cut off like going christmases without gifts and stuff like that um and so in the online world i didn't have to be that kid i could be whoever i wanted to be and um and i think that's what i liked about it the most and so when i started drinking when i was like I think I was like 17 or something like that. The first time I actually like drank and got drunk and um, I I just immediately, my world changed. Like I got the fuzzy feeling. I had confidence, like none, like all that background noise kind of disappeared. And um, I remember just like, like loving it instantly. And, and it wasn't like I like took off to the races after that. Like I was still playing a high level of soccer and like pretty dedicated to that in high school. And so in high school, like grade 12, I, you know, went out with friends on weekends and stuff like that, but, you know, maintained, like I was on like the honor roll in school and graduated with good grades and stuff like that. And did what some of us tend to do, where it's like, I'm going to take a year off, (laughs) take a year off and, and work. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I started working in a kitchen and, um, you know, I remember I was a dishwasher at this job and it was just going to be like a means to make money so I could hang out with my friends and stuff. And um, this guy that I was working with got his jaw broken. And so they ended up moving me onto the line in the kitchen. And I was I was just good at it. Like I was good at following orders and following a list and a recipe. And, and um, I kind of found my first career in that. And I ended up working in the kitchen industry for like seven years. Um, but that's where I was introduced to like one of the the sous chefs at the restaurant that I was at. He was like, do you drink? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, awesome. Let's split a 12 pack. And this is like, you know, I'm, I'm at work and I'm, I'm 18 years old and I'm like, this is the best job ever. Like I can have some drinks right. from work. There's music playing. And um, that's where it like all kind of started. Like I started drinking like more frequently started drinking at work um and and for a while i was able to like maintain a level of functioning like um you know i I worked at this restaurant for four years and worked my way up and i was the sous chef there at like i think uh when i turned 20 i was the sous chef there and and um you know i was working sometimes i I think there was a period where i worked like 30 days in a row 
though today off. And I had like a strong kind of work ethic and I prided myself on that. And, and it also, I also used it as leverage because I would, I would give my mom money and like pay the bills. And that made me feel like I was a good son while I was like running around, you know, drinking and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I think when things started going south for me, it was when I started probably around like 2021 started drinking to cope with feelings. And I remember going through like a breakup and like feeling like, like really like shitty about that and not knowing how to like process it. And so I ended up getting drunk one night and I was like, Oh, I don't have to think about it. And it was like another one of those like instant gratifications, like instant relief. And I really started like, like falling down that rabbit hole around like 21 and, and got introduced to like drugs at 21. Um, and, and that's when things started getting worse for me. Like I started using drugs while I was drinking and partying and partying went from Friday, Saturday to Sunday to Monday to Wednesday. Like mm-hmm. there was always a reason, right? It was like thirsty Thursdays, yeah. 12 pack Tuesdays. Like I just, um, I made an excuse to use all the time and, um, you know, for me, like it still stayed, like I was able to work and hold down jobs and, um, you know, was quite successful in, in the kitchen industry for a while. And I think it was about, I, I was about 23 and I started using drugs like quite a bit. And, um, my brother ended up having, having a couple kids and, uh, he lived in the same complex that we did. And one, one day I came home and I had drugs on me and I left it in a jacket and, my my niece grabbed the jacket and that like like drugs fell out of it and she went to pick it up and my mom like grabbed it out of her hand and like i just remember laying in bed and my door flaying open and my mom comes in and she's screaming at me and it was like the first time where i was like okay like there's there's a bit of a problem here Mm -hmm. and uh so my solution was the geographic solution and so my brother got moved to uh, Alberta to Edmonton for work. So I decided to move with him because it, you know, it was the people I was hanging out with fault and, sure. you know, the work, the work that I was doing, the kitchen industry was bad for me. And um, so I moved to Alberta and I, and I did well for a little while. Like it was like a couple months and, you know, new, new life, new Ryan, whatever you want to say. And um you know, like what ended up happening is those feelings came back, like loneliness, uh, disconnection. Like I was away from my friends, I was away from my my partner at the time, um, and so I started to to drink again and and use that as a uh, a way to navigate those feelings. And that's probably where my addiction got the worst. Um, was I I started drinking in the morning. I started drinking on my way to work. Um, I was doing security installs, like so I was installing security systems and buildings and new builds and houses and stuff like that. And I was like on ladders, intoxicated, like 40 feet in the air in the middle of the winter and, um, you know, like still going to work every day, though. And and um, for me, I used my ability to continue to work as an excuse to why I wasn't I wasn't like a problem for me. And. Um, so I ended up in Alberta for like a year and then I came back to Vancouver at 24 and, and moved back and, um, you know, like I, I did what I, I was good at. I went back to the kitchen industry and I took this job at a, a restaurant and it was one of my good family friends. Um, dad was the head chef there and my buddy was like, you can't mess this up. Like if you, if you, if I help you get this job, like you got to stay straight, you got to, you got to 
you know, like go to work. And, um, I was like, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, like I did well again for the first few months and, and I went to work and I was like making money and, and being a responsible person. And, you know, again, like as I had difficulties dealing with emotions, like I started to, to self-soothe through alcohol use while I was working. And, um, you know, in, in this kitchen, particularly that I was working in the, the guys that were running it, um, the owners were alcoholics as well. And like, I just fit in. Like, it was like, you know, like I was just blending into the background and, um, you know, for me, like, like I always describe it, like I, it, it felt like one day I just like woke up in hell and, you know, like I, I would classify myself as a binge user for the longest time until I was about 24 and I became a daily, a daily user. And I remember waking up one day going to work and I, you know, I was drinking on the way to work and I like was just sitting there and I was like, oh my God, I've been drinking for 60 days straight. Wow. And I was like on my way to work, working like a 10 hour shift. Um, and I remember like coming home one day and I was talking to my mom and, and she, you know, said, said the words that were like so cutting, but so true. And she was like, you're, you're ending up like your dad. Wow. And uh, oh, it gets me a little emotional thinking about it, but mm -hmm. um I like, I remember like, it was just like, like I went from being like the good kid, like to, to just like trapped mm -hmm. and uh, like, I just didn't know how to get out of it. And and at that point I was like dependent on it. So like, whenever I stopped drinking, I didn't feel normal. Um, I'd start shaking. And so like, I, and at this point in time, like I had no idea what detox was. I had no idea what withdrawal was. I didn't know what 12 step meetings were. I didn't know there was a recovery world. Um, I just knew at that point in time, I'm like, I'm an alcoholic. Like there's like, there was no bone in my body or that I disagreed with that statement, but I, but I felt trapped. Yeah. And, um, I remember I went to my first 12 step meeting in like December of 2013 a family friend of ours had about 17 years in AA and she, she took me to the meeting. Cause my mom's like, if you don't go to the meeting, like you can't live here anymore. And, you know, I was becoming a, an unemployable stay at home son at the age of like 24, 25. So my mom's like, you gotta, you gotta get your stuff together. And so I went to a meeting and I remember sitting in the back of an AA meeting and, and like people started sharing and people started talking. And I remember getting up at the end of the meeting and I was like, you know, f i'm like i'm I'm an alcoholic yeah. like i just like i you know what i mean like they were speaking my language they're telling my story um and i was so choked because i just didn't i really didn't want to be one of them but i was one of them yeah. and uh if from from december of 2013 till about july of 2014 i I went to meetings drunk. I used in meetings, after meetings, before meetings. Um, and, and during that period, my life like completely fell apart. I started having like seizures during withdrawal. Um, I became unemployable. Like I'd get a job and the weekend would hit and I would drink again. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, three weeks later I would resurface and I'd be unemployed again. And, yeah. Um, it was funny. Like I, I met this, this guy in a, and he's like, I'm going to sponsor you. And he started taking me through the big book. And, uh, I remember I just kept getting drunk and, and I got kicked out of my house and he took me in and, and he drove me downtown and 
And uh, he was like, you're like, this is where you're going to end up. And I remember thinking in my head, like, like this guy has no idea like what he's effing talking about. I'm like, you know, he's, he's older. He's, he's like, you know, I lost my marriage. I lost my kids. I'm like, I don't have any of those things. So I don't know like why you're trying to scare me. And, um, you know, pretty much everything he told me that was going to happen happened in like Mm -hmm. three months after that, like I became homeless. I was sleeping in bushes. Um, I was unemployable. I was, uh, completely dependent on alcohol. Like if I didn't have it, I was shaky. I was stealing, um, you know, like I, I went really far to, to keep drinking. Like I was scaling the sides of houses to get on balconies to steal alcohol from houses where I knew it was at. Um, you know, and, and for me, like, I, I remember, um, you know, like this one day where my mom thought I was going to work and this is where, where everything changed. Um, and she dropped me off at this like plaza where she thought I was getting picked up for work, but I actually wasn't working. Like I just never showed up for this job. And, um, I was laying in, in like a bush in the parking lot and I was like shaky and I was starting to go through withdrawal and I ended up busing home and I went on the computer and I started looking up like, like help. And, um, I ended up on the last doors website and I started talking to this like chat system that they had. And, um, you know, and, and they told me that like, you know, coming off alcohol was dangerous and, and stuff like that. So I ended up calling like a nurse's hotline and, and the nurse said the magic words to me. She's like, like, you can't just stop drinking. Like you'll get really sick and, and you're at risk of having like another seizure and, um, you know, like you could succumb to, to the illness that way. And, mm-hmm. um, so I, I, all I heard was like, I should keep drinking <laughs> for sure. And, um, you know, I, I remember leaving my house and I broke into uh, a house, couple, couple streets over. I knew the family and I knew where their key was. And so I went into the house and, um, and I drank and I was supposed to pick my mom up from work and I had her vehicle and, um, you know, I, I went to drive and I was driving and I had a moment, like just a moment where it was like, if I go straight, I'm going to continue the lie. I'm going to continue the pain. I'm going to continue it. Or I could like go to the hospital and I don't know like what came over me, but like I just drove uh, to, to Lionsgate hospital in North fan. I like parked my mom's car, like outside the hospital, like kind of on the curb and just like left it there and like went into the hospital. And I was just like, if you, if you guys don't help me, I'm going to kill myself. And uh, they like took my blood and realized my blood alcohol level was like extremely high. And next thing I know, I'm like getting rushed into a room and I'm on like suicide watch. And I remember laying there and my mom came in and um, she took her car keys and she left. And then my mom's like really good friend who, you know, has known me my whole life came in and um, she started being like the barter, like the barter system between my mom and me. Cause I, you know, put the puppy dog eyes on and, you know, like, I'm sorry. And, and all that kind of stuff. And my mom was like done. Like, she was just like, I can't like watch you kill yourself anymore. And so um, she became the wall between me and my mom and, you know, at first I was willing, I'm like, I'll do whatever it takes. And I don't want to live like this. And you know how it is. Like you start sobering up and I'm laying in the hospital bed and you can hear the hands of the clock tick yeah. and the lights kind of flickering and just that, that feeling. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, what did I do? Like, this is not, not good. Right. And 
Um, I remember falling asleep and waking up and my sister was like in, in the room and she came in from Kamloops and my brother uh, drove through the night from uh, Edmonton to Vancouver. And uh, my mom had already talked to all of them and was like, you're not allowed to take your brother. And so I was kind of at like a, a standoff with the family and, and uh, they just said like, you're not allowed to come home unless you like go get help. And uh, the hospital was going to discharge me because they're like, we're not going to keep you. And so what I ended up doing was I is probably the smartest thing I've ever done in my whole life is I committed myself to the psych ward. Uh, and so I didn't really kind of know what I was doing. Like I kind of did. And I was like signing these papers and then they wheelchaired me over to the psych ward. And I just remember, you know, like getting into the psychiatric unit and just laying on the floor in the hallway. And I was just like, like, this is what my life has come to. Right. And, um, I spent probably the next, I think it was like between 10 and 14 days in the Lionsgate uh, hospital psych ward and the staff there was like absolutely amazing to me and um they probably saved me because <clears throat> after like three days or four days i was like able to leave but they kept me in a bed until the last door had an open treatment bed for me and i honestly said like i said to the staff i'm like if you let me go like i'll drink again like i just know myself like if i have that freedom like i'll i'll, I'll get drunk and <laughs> So they kept me there until a bed opened up at the last door and I went to treatment. Uh, my clean, my clean date is July 25th of 2014. And I ended up at the door, uh, August 1st of 2014. And, and I picked that cause I was on like benzos for a taper and going mm -hmm. through the withdrawal process when I first got to the hospital. And, um, <clears throat> like I had no idea what was going to happen. All I knew was everyone was really mad at me including my partner that I had been with for about five years who showed up at the hospital and I had been lying and like, you know, like she didn't know how bad it was. She knew I was like, you know, messed up. But when she got to the hospital and realized how bad it actually was, like, she was like, I, like, I can't do this anymore. And so I knew something needed to change. And so my idea was like, I'm just going to go to treatment. I'm going to do 90 days. I'm going to move back to North Vancouver and just continue my life and everything's going to be fine. And, like i i just had no idea what recovery was i had no idea that you know um being dependent on alcohol could kill me i had no idea that um you know like how severe things actually were and until i ended up in treatment and um i feel very very lucky that i ended up where i ended up um my uncle who's my dad's brother um i hadn't seen him in, in probably like seven to eight years uh because i didn't have a relationship with my dad i hadn't seen my dad in probably nine years at the time when i was getting clean um and my uncle actually paid for me to go to the door wow because uh the wait the wait list for a funded bed there was three months mm -hmm. and so when my mom called them they're like yeah three months my mom's like my kid's gonna die yeah like he he doesn't have like where where is he gonna go and um, I had a cousin who had gone through the last door and had been years clean. And so that's how I heard about it. And so my uncle showed up at, uh, at the Lionsgate hospital and, and, uh, like for the first time I'd seen him and he sat with me and talked to me and I, I didn't know at the time, but he started funding my treatment. And, uh, I didn't know until I was like, probably like 30 days clean and in treatment that he was the one paying for it. And, um, you know, immediately I felt guilty 
Um, I was like, I, I, I got all noble. I'm like, I should leave and save them money and go to work. And, uh, I remember like telling all the guys in the house, I'm like, I need to go. And they're like, Oh, you need to stay here. <laughs> yeah. You need to get well. And, um, you know, for me, like something changed in, in those first 30 days, like I got around a community. There was a lot of young people in recovery. Um, and like, for me, like I, I'm easily influenced. And, um, I saw, you know, the thing I really loved about last door is their alumni that come by there every day. And these guys were picking me up and taking me to meetings and they had years in the program and, you know, they had jobs, they had relationships, they, they had life. And I, I was attracted, like, like, honestly, like, like within 30 days, like I bought in, like, I was just like, like, you know, like screw my old life. Like I didn't even have one. Like I was just so, um, caught up in that energy of the community there, um, that I just, I just like, I just put my head to it and I was like, I'm, I'm going to try my hardest and I'm going to give it my best. And, you know, at the end of the 90 days, if I still want to go use, like, like I'll make that decision at the end of the 90 days. Right. And, um, I was just telling someone at my, my sober living here the other day, like, I remember the most content I've ever felt was when I showed up at the last door, I was wearing, I don't, I don't know why I wore this to the hospital, but I wore pajama pants, sweatpants, and a jeans over that, and then a shirt that was covered in paint. And so that's all I had when I showed up to the last door, was like these like small amount of belongings. And, um, you know, that's really what I had to my name. I had like a 300 credit score. I owed tons of money. Um, I had lots of people that were mad at me, but I was the most content I'd ever been. Like, I just like, you know, going to a meeting with the guys in the morning and having some laughs and like connecting on like a level that I'd never connected on before. And, um, you know, I remember just having like a moment at 30 days clean where I was like, I I think I can do this. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I could, could get behind this. And, um, you know, I did four, I think I did four and a half months of treatment there. Um, and I ended up uh, moving into, um, someone who worked there's basement suite um, after treatment. And, um, you know, I made that really big decision cause I didn't have like a, like I had some life skills, like I was really good at working, but I wasn't really good at managing anything else, like, mm-hmm. like budgeting or none of that kind of stuff. And, but I just knew if I went home that I would succumb to my environment, like all my old friends were there. Every time I went over the bridge back into North van, I, I felt this immense, like shame, guilt, um and so i knew for me like um i made a commitment when i made amends to my mom that i would stay in new west for a year before i made a decision um about moving home and and the funny part about that is like it was my mom's house it wasn't my house 25 years old like you know like i i wasn't even paying rent like i i I was just like a leech and so (laughs) i remember being in treatment and i said that i'm like i want to go back to my house and my my counselor was like that's not your house it's your mom's house (laughs) like like buddy like you're you're an adult right and um you know i didn't know what any of that meant like um what self-esteem was i didn't know what um you know taking responsibility could do for my life and um, when I started to embrace those principles, mm-hmm. like I, I got well. And, um, you know, for me, um, when I, when I left treatment, the most important thing on my radar was making money. Um, because growing up, we didn't have any, 
And so um, I started doing like an electrical apprenticeship because my idea was like, I'm going to go up north and I'm going to make money and I'm going to work. And, um, you know, because I, I didn't want to I didn't want to end up in a position my mom was in where she um, just suffered. Right. And uh, so I, I remember I was like I was out of treatment. I was doing my electrical apprenticeship. And my mom ended up moving to Alberta to be close to uh, my brother's kids. Cause she, she actually said to me, she retired and she was like, I don't have to babysit my adult child anymore. So I'm going to go spend time with my grandkids. And so she, she moved out to Alberta when I was about like a year clean. And, um, she came to visit once and we sat down and we were talking and my mom worked for, for ICBC for a long time. And, um, I wouldn't say she hated her job, but the only reason she stayed there was because it gave her enough to provide for us. Mm -hmm. Like that was the only reason that I kept her there. And she said to me, she's like, do you want to be happy or do you want a paycheck? And at the time I was like contemplating, like my roommate that I was living with um, was like encouraging me to volunteer at the last door. And um, you know, like I was, I was going to work every day and on my way home from work, I would go to last door. And it was like my lifeline in the beginning. Like I was going to meetings every day, but I would go to the last door and I would, you know, hang out with the guys and I would connect with them and I was sponsoring guys in the house. And, um, you know, I remember having that conversation with my mom, like it was yesterday where she was like, do you want to be happy or do you want to make money? And, uh, I remember I started volunteering pretty shortly after that at the youth program. And I was pretty much like a fly on the wall. Like I just kept showing up there. And I was like, kept trying to get a job, but they weren't giving me one. And uh, I was just a bit relentless in that fact. And, um, you know, they finally hired me in um, 2015 as a support staff at their youth program. And, you know, I started uh, going to school to become a, become a counselor. And, um, you know, like I have a, a debt of gratitude to the door. They paved the way for, you know, my recovery, but also for my education too. Right. So, um, you know, like they sent me to school and I worked as a support worker and worked my way into, um, uh, a case manager there once I finished school. And, uh, I became an international certified drug and alcohol counselor through the CACCF and, you know, just continued my education. And, you know, recently last year, I became a certified recovery coach with you, Ryan, when we took that course and, um, you know, like I, I did counseling there for, yeah, like, like seven and a half years. And, um, in the last four years I was there, I started doing a lot of family work. I, um, became the co-facilitator of their family group that they run every Wednesday night. Um, and then I also became one of the f facilitators and then the actual coordinator for their family enhancement program where they do like an, a, a retreat over four days at their rural property and mission. And, um, I got really embedded in working with the actual family as well. And so a lot of my work that I do in my business is rooted in not working with just the kid, but working with the family as a family system. Um, and for me, that was like, like when I got well, my mom got well. Like uh, when I was in treatment, uh, I know I'm getting so emotional, but um, she was on medical leave from work because I was like, like she was like driving me to AA meetings and I was like leaving out the back door and then drinking. Like she would give me like Tim Hortons cards so I wouldn't have money. And then I'd sell the Tim Hortons cards and buy alcohol with them. And, um, you know, I remember when my mom started going to the, the family group at last door, I remember watching her put on weight 
Like I watched her get well. Mm-hmm. And so when I got the opportunity to start doing that there, like it was such a cool experience. Like I remember my mom flew in from Edmonton once and came and sat in the parents group when I was facilitating it. And uh, yeah, it was just like, <clears throat> yeah, it was cool. Um, sorry. No. Uh, we got a box so of Kleenex here like, if you were in studio because it, it, it tends to happen, but it's all good, buddy. It, yeah, like it, it was just like, I remember it was one of those moments where I was like, like so grateful. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, like you guys know, like when you're, when you're getting into recovery, like you've no idea what's going to happen. And it's that fear of like, what's going to happen to me when I take away mm-hmm. this crutch that I've been living with. and um for me it's like like i was talking to my wife the other day like i had no idea the doors that were gonna open (laughs) um like and they just kept opening like they just kept opening and um you know like this year you know like recovery i don't think is about like monetary values or or money but it's like in this last year like me and my wife bought our first place she actually agreed to marry me, which is, you know, like, uh, an amazing feat in itself. And, you know, I became self-employed and, you know, like someone believed in my business enough to, you know, buy in and, and help me pull this off. Like I definitely wouldn't be able to pull this off by myself. And, you know, like some days I wake up and I feel like I'm living someone else's life. Like it's, it's just, um, you know, like when I, when I got clean, I was 139 pounds and I'm, I'm almost six two, And, uh, you know, like in eight years of being in recovery, like the things that have unfolded or have been beyond my wildest dreams. And, um, you know, it's not like it all happened the way I wanted it to happen. Like I didn't plan on becoming an addictions counselor when I got clean. Um, and it, it just like naturally, as I continued doing recovery, like, like my life kind of fell into place. Right. And, um, you know, I remember talking to my uncle when I was a few years clean and I was like, Hey, I can, I can start paying you back. And I was having dinner with him and he's like, I don't want you to pay me back. He was just like, I want you to pay it forward and, uh, like just help people. Right. And, um, yeah. So I remember, uh, when I got married in the summer, I had to make like a, a pretty tough decision and I didn't invite my dad to the wedding. Um, but I invited my uncle and, um, so I, I got to spend some time with them and I was telling him about, uh, opening this house. And he was just like, like, that's, uh, the payback right there. <laughs> right. And, um, so yeah, like for me, it's just, you know, I was, I was sitting in the living room yesterday and there's like two feet of snow. Um, me and my guys, like, I, like, I don't send them out there without me. Like sure. if I'm going to ask my guys to do something, like I should be doing it. Like if they're going to go to meetings, like I should be in meetings. Like if they're going to spo- like have a sponsor, I should have a sponsor. And so me and my wife and, and our guys that live here, we're out shoveling every single person's driveway and, and sidewalk in our neighborhood. Cause we live on this like really tight alley. And uh, the neighbors didn't even know what to think because they were really, really choked that we were opening up a sober living house here. So I like, like I had to notify uh, the community about what I was doing 
in order to um, get a temporary use permit to operate here. And so I had to hand out flyers stating I was opening up a, a sober living for people in recovery and people tried to petition it. Like a few of my neighbors got together, they tried to get a petition going and I had to host like a virtual open house um, where people could come ask questions about my business. And, you know, there was like eight of them got together and literally lambasted me for two hours yeah. over Zoom. Like, how dare you do this? How dare you endanger our families? And you're going to bring the crime rate up in our community. And right. the city had to step in multiple times to tell them to stop being so disrespectful. But I remember leaving that Zoom call. And like, I worked at the door and the door has a massive footprint and they have a huge voice. And I was so sheltered as a, a counselor there that I forgot what they were fighting for. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember going going to the door because um, they like they'll always hold like a massive piece in my heart. And I was talking to Giuseppe, who's the public relations manager there, and I was like, "Man, I have so much respect for you, what you do," because uh, I forget the stigma sometimes, right? Yeah. Like I remember talking to my neighbor in person outside, and he was like yelling at me. And I'm like, "Do you, I'm like, do you know some of the guys that live here? Like one of the guys that lives here has two kids, they're six and seven years old." And, uh, like, I forget that people view us like that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah, it was cool. When I was talking to my uncle, he was just like, you're doing everything I wanted you to do. And, uh, it kind of came, came full circle. Right. And so, you know, like I, I have so much gratitude, um, for like the people that helped me, like doors just kind of opened for me. Like I had no idea when I walked into that hospital that like, <laughs> what was going to unfold in the, the next coming, coming little while. Like I, I just didn't think that was going to happen. And, um, you know, I feel, I feel really lucky because I know a lot of people that have gone into the hospital and have been discharged yeah. and then end up using and, and unfortunately sometimes dying. Um, and for me, I don't know what happened or how it worked, but the nurses there kept rotating me in different beds just to keep me there. And so like they, they went the extra mile and, um, you know, it probably saved my life to be honest. So, um, you know, I, I feel when I'm sitting in a room with other people in recovery and I'm talking about recovery, like that's my, that's my passion. Yeah. That's my purpose. Um, you know, one of my best friends just got married recently and, you know, he, he always laughs, like he's not in recovery, but he like goes to all my cakes. He's super supportive. Um, like you know, he like doesn't drink around me. Like he's, he's a really, really cool guy. And he, they used to call me story time guy when I was in addiction. Cause I would just tell the most ridiculous stories and, you know, had all these great ideas, but never followed through with any of them. <laughs> and so for, for him, when I started, you know, facilitating groups and running groups and recovery, he's like, dude, like story time, Rob, <laughs> you found your, your, uh, you found your, your calling, jam, man. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Like for me, it's it's been a cool journey and um, getting to meet you guys too. Like Rye, when I met you last year and, mm -hmm. and found out what you guys were doing, and then I got to run into you know Rick and and go to the conference in Calgary, and I got to see you guys there. And I know you guys just held the conference as well. And um, you know, like I'm blown away with what you guys are doing. And and um, I just think when when people in recovery get together, like yeah. like good things just happen. Mm -hmm. You know. And, um, I felt suit, like, I felt like it was a bit of a God shot when, uh, 
you know, the individual who ended up at the door that you guys were helping a lot and he ended up on my, my caseload. I just felt like it was kind of meant to be. And, um, you know, I know you guys like went the extra mile for him. And so I know what you guys are doing up there is like with pure, like genuineness and, and passion and behind it is just like, like good. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think when you get those things working together, like good things are going to happen. I know you guys are going to do like lots of good stuff out there. So, um, when Rick reached out to me to get on the podcast, I was just like, like, there's no doubt in my mind. I know Ryan, we talked about it when we were in the recovery coaching training. So I'm just like super grateful to be on here and, and, and kind of share some of my story. Cause like, I'm not special. Like, um, you know, like maybe I have, some some qualities that work well with me to be a counselor but mm -hmm. um you know I, I feel like i just like i had an opportunity and i finally ran with it and it just kind of has worked out in my favor and you know like it's pretty cool like I, I had a zoom session with uh dr ray baker the other day and and i'm gonna go do uh some more training in the recovery coach field in in january with him and um hopefully become like a certified recovery coach trainer mm -hmm. so I can train people to become a recovery coach. And, um, you know, for me, I just want to keep like learning and growing and, um, you know, help like helping people as much as I can. Cause, um, you know, like I was one of those, those young kids who like people just went out of their way to help me. And if it hadn't happened like that, it, like, I don't think I'd be sitting in front of you guys. Right. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a wild, wild ride. Like this year's probably been the hardest year of my life. Like leaving last door was really, really hard. Um, cause they're like a mom and pop organization and you feel like family there. All my friends are there. And, um, you know, I, I was like, there, I, I was there for like two days, man. And I felt like family, like, yeah, I, it was hard for me to leave and it was two days. <laughs> right. Like I yeah. can't imagine. Yeah. So it was, uh, like, cause I got married on the 19th of, or to the 21st of August. My last day at the door was the 19th. And then we went away on a honeymoon to the Dominican. And then I came back in September and I was like fully self-employed mm -hmm. with this big house that, um, I, I had to do like, I put all new flooring in it. We painted the whole place. We put a new roof on it. We gutted two bathrooms and we did a lot of the work ourselves. And um, I remember not really thinking about leaving the door until I got back and I was like, like, it was really hard. Like it was really hard. Um, you know, like for a lot of different reasons. And I, I think the biggest thing is just like, I love them. Like, I love what they do. I love their integrity. Um, and I love how they've connected with Alberta because your guys's recovery orientated, orientated systems of care out there is just like, it's mind blowing. So mind blowing what you guys are doing out there compared to out here. And, um, you know, I, I think you guys are, are fighting a really good fight out there. And I know, um, your guys' society is, is just going to do like a lot of good things because it's rooted in, in the same thing that the door is rooted in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, where it's still about recovery, it's all about recovery. And, um, yeah, so it, it, it was like hard to to leave because I always prided myself on being a, a staff member there. Mm -hmm. I, I know I'm still a door boy, like an alumni and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, Rick, seeing you kind of get enmeshed in that that community and seeing you there with uh with the other guy and the pictures and stuff, like it warmed my heart that you got to kind of experience that community as well. Um 
because you know it's it's special for sure and i feel like, like you guys are you guys are building something out there i don't know what you have going on in the background but i feel like you guys are gonna build something pretty cool too so yeah it's been uh it's been a ride you know i love having you on here you know we've had we've had a few guests that have you know the door keeps coming up for sure in our conversations and and a bit of uh a bit of an inspiration, I think, even for some of the stuff that we do for sure between, you know, everybody out there, like getting to sit with Dave for, you know, an hour and a half, just sitting me and him chatting was like, it's like you're in the presence of royalty and he's the least royalty guy in the world. Right. <laughs> but, uh, it, it was it's just an amazing experience and getting to hang out at some of the meetings in that area, just the energy of the whole community that, that, you know, and I do, I know there's more agencies around there, but you know, I think for sure they they cut the path for everybody and just to see the energy they've created in that community is to to feel the energy in that community was really inspirational um the one thing that i do that you know kind of jumped out at me and and one of the thoughts that i had bouncing around in my head as you were talking was uh when you said you know you're not special and uh and for me you know a a couple points of it right when you're when you were talking about how you kind of get numb to the um insulated i guess from the stigma and stuff and and for me it even this podcast even this thing that we do here right it's um we just collect people's stories right that's all we're doing we're we're trying to make sure that people don't ever feel like they're alone but even to me as i listen to some of our guests and how inspirational their stories are i i you know and, and i don't mean to disrespect you in the least this isn't about you but sometimes it feels like it's a bit of a repetitive story to me right because it's there's so many similarities in everybody's story with the feelings, the emotions that I don't fit in. You know, it's, it's the same story. And I know like you being in the industry, as long as you have, you've heard the same story over and over and over for sure, different variations of it. Right. But, um, you know, as we sit here and we collect these stories and I'm like, fuck, like, are people still listening? Like, is it just the same story over and over told a little different, but then we'll get a shot and we'll get somebody messaging and saying like that one person, I listened to this episode that you guys released a year and a half ago and it changed my life and it put me on a different course. And it's, mm-hmm. and, and it's amazing how like, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the deeper we get into this, this, it's, it's so important to kind of stay, do everything we can to not get numb to that, to not get insulated from that because you know, all those little God shots that you talked about that just keep popping up. It's like, you know, it's it's part of the motivation too to keep going because you never know when when somebody hears what they need to hear from whoever they need to hear it right so I don't know that's kind of what I took away there yeah it's it's been a really cool episode and Ryan I I love how you know your path has taken you down the direction of working with families and supporting and educating and and working on that piece right because we know firsthand based on our own lived experience, how addiction is a family disease, right? And all the people that are selfish behavior in addiction is impacting. And I didn't realize that until I got into recovery. I'm like, holy shit, I was affecting way more people than just me. <laughs> you know, I, that was my loser mentality was like, it's my money, it's my job, I'll do what I want. But now I see how far out that ripple effect goes and to see somebody taking on that, you know, that space and, and filling that gap to help the families is is amazing. And I know we've had some rumblings on our end too, about, you know, what can we do something, you know, in that aspect to support the supporters of somebody in addiction. Right. Cause mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's a, it's just as confusing for them as it is for the, for the person who's struggling with addiction, where are the supports, what are we supposed to do? 
We know Al-Anon's out there, but what else is there, right? And that's the piece that we're starting to put together as well. Do I smell a collaboration on a program <laughs> development brew here? That's possible. <laughs> I, I think you do. I think you do. I think we totally yeah. just said, yeah, we baited you into this whole thing, like under the guise of telling your story. Yeah, right? Check. We're just in this to actually get you sucked into our community so that we can, you know, use your skills and your program and start uh, helping people. Yeah, here. we don't like to reinvent the wheel. You've already invented it. Yeah. No, uh, that's awesome. I, I mean, and uh, um, I, I think a lot of the ways that I end up working with people is it starts with the family because mm-hmm. you're you're right, Ryan. Like, it, addiction doesn't make sense to a person who isn't as, isn't in it or in recovery. Like, it's it's just so mind blowing. Yeah. Like, I was talking to a mom the other day. Just Her son was having the best day of his life. Like, achieved a bunch of stuff that he wanted to achieve, and then he got high. Mm-hmm. And and she was on vacation in LA and the first time she went away since he's been in recovery and all of a sudden she's just like, like, why? Like, why? And I was like, like, I, like, I get it. Like I, I used on some of the best days of my life where I'm like, yeah, let's celebrate. Like I could probably have one. (laughs) And to someone else, they don't, they don't know what that's like. And you know, you can't go to the water cooler at work and be like, Oh, guess what? My, you know, son finally got to this place and then he got high. Like they don't, people don't get that. And so a lot of it is like holding space to educate like the insanity that comes with addiction and um because you know when you can't make sense of something typically people blame themselves Mm -hmm. like when i don't have an answer to something i'll I'll turn inwards and then become hard on myself and families are like that too so um a lot of the time i end up working with the family first until i can get a hold of the guy and then it's then i start doing the work with the guy right and so um you know like it just naturally started happening that way in my business and i you know, started paying attention to it and was kind of like, you know, I, I think that's one thing, um, you know, that makes the door very successful is they don't treat the person, they treat the system, the mm-hmm. family. Yeah. And, you know, like something I used to say all the time to the parents at the door was like, that place is just as much yours as it is your kids. Right. And there's that like open door policy to the, the family as well. And I think that's, that's kind of important because, addiction is isolating not only for us but for for them right and you know i was rick i was thinking about what you said and i remember i used to i used to do the na panel at a detox center here and i used to go in every two weeks and you know like people are like nodding out and you know like getting up and leaving in the middle of the panel and there'd be like one guy that would show up for it and i remember just like on my way there once i was like why like why do i do this what a waste of time like no one's listening they're all over medicated and so I went there once and, and it was another one of those things. Like people were like literally in the front, just like this. And, um, you know, I, in my heart, I was like, why am I doing this? But I shared my story anyways. And I was at a meeting a week later and this guy on the other side of the meeting, he's like, Ryan, like waving at me. And I'm like, who is this guy? And he's like, Hey, I, I was on in your panel, uh, a week ago at Creekside Detox. And he's like, I heard what you said. And, and I was listening and I wanted to come check out the meetings in new West and, uh, that guy's clean right now. Amazing. Like he's clean in the community. He's got friends. He's got purpose. He's got life. I had no idea that someone was listening. So, um, you know, I, I agree. Like there's some days where I wake up, <laughs> why do I do this? And, uh, and then I have a moment, you know, like that mom I was talking about, like, she's like, thank, like, thank your wife and you, like without you, I don't know where it would be. Right. And it was just like, okay, like there's a, there's a lifeline there for someone who hears it, whether they hear it right now or they hear it in a year. Um, I know for me, 
like someone carried the message when I couldn't carry myself. And, and mm-hmm. as a result, like I'm, I'm here. Right. Um, and I, I think without those conversations, like it's, it's what, it's what makes it go around. And I, um, you know, I, I think everyone's story is, is similar in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's what our strength is as, as a group is like that similarity that's in there. Um, you know, cause I, I used to always look at the differences and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I got to last door, um, I, I got mad at my counselor cause they wanted me to go to narcotics anonymous meetings. And I'm like, I'm an alcoholic. Like I'm going to AA. And like, they're like, man, like you use anything, anything <laughs> yeah. to escape, like just go sit in the meeting and open your ears and listen. And you know, like I, like I go to both, like depend, like when I'm traveling, I can't find an NA meeting. I'll sit in an A meeting and I'll read the book and speak their language and, and do all that kind of stuff. And, but my, my heart is in NA because I look as a, at addiction as a whole, like it's not like just the drug or the drink or whatever. Like it's me, it's that spiritual void that I'm trying to fill. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you know, I think in families, they get the same thing. Like there's a void. When they're when they start losing their loved one to addiction, there's a void that takes place, and they need to fill that. And so, connecting families, um, you know, sometimes it's just listening. Like sometimes I'll just be on call with a mom, and she's crying, and yeah. like I just listen. And you know, I I might say a few things. I don't fix it. Like I don't, you know, like sometimes I can't fix it. And um, you know, sometimes that's that's all people need is like someone to rationalize the insanity of addiction, mm-hmm. where you know, like. I remember sharing a story in parents group one time where I was like, I can't, I, can't, I did something really bad. And I don't know why I said it. Cause I'm pretty sure half the parents were like, what's wrong with this guy. But I, I shared something about what I did in addiction. And the mom took me aside and she was like, thank you. Cause I think like her son sold their lawnmower or something like that. And she thought she like misplaced a lawnmower, but the kid actually sold it. And I, I did something similar. Like I, I think I took a big box of change out of my house and I like went and bought alcohol with it. And then I argued with my mom that it wasn't me, even though I was the only person that lived there besides our dog. And, you know, so my mom started questioning her own sanity. And so was this mom. She was like, maybe I did misplace the lawnmower. And, you know, the kid eventually told her when he wrote her a step nine letter was like, yeah, I sold the lawnmower from drugs. And she's like, I knew it, right? But, I wasn't you know, crazy. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that me simply sharing that story the mom left that meeting being like i don't feel crazy i don't feel insane like you know so rick i like what you said like sometimes we don't know what words are going to connect with people and that's kind of why we share our story right yeah um and that's why i love your guys's podcast is collecting the stories because you know i i think that's what when when someone hears their story i think they're more likely to create change um, when they hear and connect with those like feelings and emotions and maybe not the unmanageability, but the, the feeling of it all. Right. Like when I share the more, the beginning stage of my addiction, like that stuff in high school, um, and, and those feelings, more people connect on that than they do with like my, my substance use. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think that's why I really like what you guys do in collecting the stories. Cause it's like, someone's going to listen and they're going to hear it. And they're going to get hope and that like that's what we are we're carriers of hope right um and so yeah it's it's pretty cool what you guys are doing well we appreciate the uh 
we appreciate the support. We appreciate everything that you guys are doing out there. And, and again, like another shout out to the door. And I know this isn't always about the door, but they've had such a major influence on so many people that we respect. And uh, yeah, just amazing. That whole community out there in New West is like, other than today having two feet of snow, the weather's better. The community's pretty awesome. The energy out there is pretty wicked. I, and I did manage to dodge the uh, the infamous ice bath with Dave. Um, so I think. Oh, I, you got out of it. I did. I did. Yeah. Apparently, it's kind of like one of the prerequisites for having a chat with him is you got to sit in an ice bath. Um, so maybe I'll maybe I'll do that this summer. Come back out when the weather's we'll, a little nicer. We'll live stream that one. <laughs> I just that, want to that's say that's got to be like a live video for sure. On totally. Facebook and yeah. Yeah. First, the first ever live episode with video is straight out of the ice bath at new West. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much, man. It's been, uh, it's been great hearing your story. Congratulations on uh, taking that leap of, leap of faith and getting the support that you need and, and the people on board. It's like you said, I mean, I know I, I can speak for all of us. Uh, we had no idea where this path would lead us and the doors that keep opening kind of blows our mind every day too mm-hmm. so we can uh we can certainly relate yeah man and uh yeah like rick said thanks for coming on today thanks for taking time out of your schedule out there and you know i, I we've known each other for a year now and this today is the first time i really got to hear your story in depth right we we all know when we come into these these rooms that we have that common thread that we're in recovery but i love hearing you know what it was like for you and what was your turning point and Cause I know what you're doing now and it's amazing, but I love hearing all that stuff. And there's so many similarities in your story, Ryan, as there is to mine. And, you know, over this last year, the similarities continue, right? You're starting something new on your own. We've started something new here over the last couple of years. You got married. I got married. Your name's Ryan. My name's Ryan. Things are fucking rolling here. <laughs> Man, it's like my long lost brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, dude. No, thank you very much. And I know this has been on our list to have you on for quite a while now. And we're just really stoked that you uh, came on, shared your story. And and I think it's as much as it's similar to all the stories we've heard, you know, what you've done now is different and, and it's just continuously helping people. And you said it at the start, right? It's everything is rooted in recovery. And, and as long as we go at it from that lens of recovery and I, I honestly believe more people are going to get help. So very so, cool. Why don't you go ahead and throw one more shout out to your company, their website or how they can get a hold of you. Uh, yeah, it's maintain recovery and, and the website's just uh, maintainrecovery.com. Awesome. So if you're looking, yeah. if you're looking, if you get a hold of us, uh, we can, we can put you in the right direction too. So thanks a lot, Ryan. Thanks for being on. Love having you as a guest. And uh, Oh, uh, thanks everybody at plugged in media network and Nicole Davis Real Estate, and that's a wrap. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you, and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.